Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Welcome to Central Baptist Church. Y'all ready to sing? I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we sing forever. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever.
Amen. That's awesome. Thanks, guys. That is, man, aren't you thankful for Mike and the band who lead us every week? Oh, man, they do such a great job. Y'all take a seat real quick. And it's at this time that we are going to dismiss our kids to Jesus Kids. So parents, if you want your kids to go back there, they're learning the same thing we are today, which is about the stones of remembrance. So if your kids are checked in, you can turn them loose. If you want to go with them, get them checked in, make sure they go to the right place. That'll be great. And as they leave, we're going to have a time of focused prayer. And uh, this summer, we started doing a new uh, prayer initiative that we call Prayer Shields, which is where some of the uh, leaders in our church each month uh, give us some things to be praying about. And so I wanted to make sure everybody has a Prayer Shield handout and prayer guide. Did everybody get one of these when you came in this morning? No. Okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come down. And I'm going to enlist Aaron. Can you help me, my friend? Can you, if you do not have a prayer shield prayer guide, will you raise your hand? Okay, it's about just about everybody. (laughs) Keep your hands raised. That way we know. Joey, you want to take over? I appreciate that. And we're going to go through this prayer guide just briefly. Because my name's in it. And y'all don't know how badly my family needs your prayers. They need you to be praying for them every day because they got to live with me. And there are people in this prayer guide who, who need your prayers as well. And so what I want you to do is when you get it, I want you just to kind of quiet your own soul. Take some deep breaths. And run your eyes down those pages. And just prayerfully allow the Holy Spirit to point out one of our church's leaders that you might spend a few moments praying for this morning. You do that? I think Harley's getting some. She's going to bring them up to you guys so y'all can pray. Ms. Becky, I'm sure she'll bring one to you too. And so why don't we just take a minute, run your eye down the names, Some of y'all were asked to submit your prayer requests and you didn't, or your name would be in here. But you do see the people who are here. We got Pastor Jerry and Sylvia, Raymond and Amy, Mike and Cindy, Clinton and Stephanie, Scott and Erica Jones, Tony Jones, our prayer coordinator, me and my family, and Jenny and Jason Pusell. Jenny is our ministry assistant. So I trust that the Holy Spirit has given you some insight into who he wants you to pray for. So we're going to take maybe one or two minutes to pray over the people he's laid on our hearts. And of course, use these prayer requests as a guide, but if something else comes to mind that you want to pray for them, do it, okay? So church, let's pray together, surrounding our leaders with prayer.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the leaders you've given our church, for the men and women who have special gifts and abilities and who've sacrificed their time and their energy to build us up to do the work you've called us to do. Well, we pray for each one of them, not just those whose names are in this prayer guide, but all of them. God, we pray that you would protect them from our enemy's schemes. If he wants to tear them down, we pray that you would build them up. We pray especially for their families, that they would experience harmony in their homes like they've never had it before. We pray that their fellowship with you would be sweet and they'd be able to lead us out of an overflow of the abiding relationship they have with Jesus. We pray for creativity and wisdom as they make plans for our church. We pray that you would strengthen them when they feel worn down so that they can lead the way you've called them to. And we thank you for the gift they are to us. And Father, we pray that you'd continue being with us in this service today. That we would continue thinking about your faithfulness and your unending love. The way even when we stumble and fall, you pick us back up again. And Lord, when it seems like we've lost faith altogether, you bring us back. We pray that you'd remind us of it today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would soften our hardened hearts that you would remind us of all the good things you've done in our lives, and that you would help us to see Jesus today. It's in his name the church said, Amen. Amen. Will you stand as we continue worshiping together? The splendor of the King Clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness hides and hides, and trembles at his voice, and trembles at his voice. How great! is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And I'll see how great, how great is our God. And age to age He stands. And time Beginning and the end, beginning and the end. The Godhead three in one. Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb, the Lion and the Lamb. How great.
sing how great is our God how great is our God sing with me how great is our God and all will see how great how great Great. 
I got to follow that. Man, that's, that's hard. 
Hey, will you go ahead and take out your copy of God's Word and open it up to Joshua chapter 3? I'm not going to ask you to stand today because we're going to read all of Joshua 3 and 4. I couldn't figure out any other way to do it. So we're going to do Bible story time, which may have been a while for some of y'all, but man, this is a good story. And so it's worth paying attention to. We're going to read Joshua 3 and 4. If you're a guest with us today, my name's Brad. I forgot to introduce myself earlier, but I figure you know that. You probably checked out our website before you came or something, so you know who I am. I'd love to know who you are. And on your way out today, if you'd stop in the hallway and shake my hand and tell me your name, I'd really appreciate that. And if I have to ask you your name a second or third time, please forgive me. I'm bad with those. Joshua 3. This is what God's Word said. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, And he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim. That means the Acacia Grove. And they came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However... There shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits, or about 1,000 yards. Don't come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you haven't passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the ark of the covenant before the people... And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped into the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood up and rose in one great heap, a great distance away at Adam, the city that's beside Zarethan, 
And those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, we call it the Dead Sea, those waters were completely cut off. And so the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. We're halfway there. Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God, into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? That you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. And then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan, at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they're there to this day. For the priests who carried the ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was commanded, completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed. And when all the people had finished crossing, the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people. And then the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 men equipped for war. And they crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. And on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. So they revered him, just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. Now the Lord commanded Joshua, saying, Command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came about when the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up to the dry ground, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth of the first month, and they camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they'd taken up from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he says to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. 
Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Hope God blesses that extended reading of his word today. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are great. There's none greater. Nobody on earth could do the things you've done, could show us the kind of love that you've shown us, could provide for us the way you have. And we pray today as we study our way through this passage that you would, by your Spirit, speak clearly to each of us, that you would show us exactly what it is you want us to hear, and more than that, what you want us to do. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, for the past several weeks, if you've been around CBC, you've been hearing a lot of, about our Strategic Ministry Task Force and the Strategic Ministry Plan that team has been working on for the past 16 months. And we're going to give you that full report on the 21st, and I'm really excited about it because... This process has really been, for me personally, and I'm just speaking for Brad Mills, uh, it's been one of the most gratifying and challenging experiences I've had in ministry. Uh, I say it's gratifying because on the one hand, when I think about our church and Luling, Texas, and where we are together, uh, I think our future is incredibly bright. I think this body of Christians here has so much potential. I think God has big plans for us. And so gathering with this team every month for the past 16 months has been so exciting. We're thinking about what God could do with us. If only he would make it clear, we would obey, right? And so it's been really exciting. And yet, on the other hand, it's been challenging because through this process, I've really had to come to terms with some of my own personal leadership insecurities and doubts. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe in life you've experienced a situation kind of like this, where you see a great opportunity out there in front of you, some decision that you can make that could change your life. Maybe it's a career move, right? Some of y'all have faced that before. Maybe it's some kind of lifestyle change. Maybe it's a major financial decision or something. Or maybe it's just a, a deeper commitment to walk with Christ, just something new. And and so you, you see this thing clearly in your mind, and there it is out there in front of you, and you're so excited and inspired, and you sit down to map out for yourself how you're going to get there. And as you start to do that, that wonderful opportunity starts to look like a daunting task. And you start to ask yourself, like, am, am I cut out for this, really? Do I have what it takes to make this kind of change, to do this kind of decision? And then maybe you're like me, and the question comes in, like, is it even worth it? This is going to be hard. Is it worth making all the needed changes to pursue this thing that's out in front of me? And that's kind of how I felt through this whole 16 months. Like, man, this is a daunting task. I don't know if I'm cut out for this. Oh, man, this is a daunting task. Is it even worth it? And so I've been praying praying for you and for me and for our church and its future and what role God might would have us play in it. And, 
how I might would try to inspire us to face whatever it is that comes next. And this story kept coming to mind. Story of Joshua and the people of Israel at this ancient city of Jericho. I don't know if you remember the story from Bible school. You maybe even remember the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. And that's like you're supposed to fall when you say down like that. But you don't have to remember all the details to get the gist. Right? Here's this ancient, well-fortified cities, a city with you know, walls that reach to the sky, and the people of Israel march around it six days, and then on the seventh day they march around it seven times, and when God says they shout, blast the trumpets, and the walls fall down. And man, I wanted to preach that sermon. And I'm going to. But as I was preparing it and thinking about all the inspirational things I might would say, it dawned on me that the battle of Jericho wasn't the first experience the people of Israel had with God's power. In fact, they had to go through two really gut-wrenching, faith-testing experiences that prepared them to walk around a city seven times and shout, like that's going to do anything. And one of those experiences is the story we just read, the people of Israel miraculously crossing the Jordan River. The next, next one comes from chapter 5, and if you peeked ahead, you can see that it's a sensitive and delicate topic that we're going to tackle and uh, teaches us how costly following Christ can be. But this morning, we're going to work through these two chapters to see how God built in his people a personal experience of his power and the reality of his presence that meant that by the time they got to Jericho, they were fully prepared to do whatever God had asked them to do. And so this morning, this is what I want you to see. As we remember God's work in the past, it builds our faith to face what's next. As we remember God's work in the past, it builds our faith to face what's next. Now, we're going to work through this passage. There's three parts to it. But before we do, I want to orient you to the book of Joshua. And maybe when we're done with Mark in 2050, we will start in on the book of Joshua. I'm just kidding. I hope to finish Mark in 2023. But uh, this book is great. I mean, it picks up right where the book of Deuteronomy leaves off. The people of Israel are camped out on the plains of Moab on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, looking across its banks into the Promised Land. They've just finished 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, which was punishment for the Exodus generation's lack of faith and doubt in God when they rejected the good spies' report of the Promised Land and uh, acted rebelliously against God. And so for 40 years, they've wandered, following their leader Moses, until Every last person who left Egypt in the Exodus died. And all that's left are a brand new generation of people, fresh out of the wilderness, excited about the future and what comes next. Joshua has taken the helm of Israel for Moses, who passed away. And he's anointed and empowered by God to be a warrior and to lead his people in conquest. But before they can conquer... They've got to cross this swollen river. And so in Joshua 3 and 4, we get our first test of God's power. 
And I really love how the story reads. I mean, it is kind of lengthy and it is repetitive. That's the nature of Hebrew narrative. It says the same thing over and over and over again. People often say that the Greek mind and you and I are, inheritant, are inheritors of the Greek intellectual tradition. We think in a line. But the Hebrew way of thought is more circular. And so they say things over and over and over again because they know we have thick skulls and we need to hear it more than once. And so that's this story. It's repetitive, but it's driving this point across. And so God prepares his people for his miraculous intervention. And then he miraculously intervenes. And then he instructs them to remember the way he miraculously intervened. And I think there's something instructive to that. That there's nothing insignificant about the things God does. So first, let's see how God prepared his people for this miracle. Right? Here they are on the banks of the Jordan River. And in the first half of chapter 3, the Lord tells Joshua to prepare the people to cross. He does that first in verse 5. I know you saw it. Let's read it again. He says, Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. This word wonders really clues us in to what God's about to do. He's not just about to solve a logistical problem, how the people are going to cross a swollen river. He's about to do something miraculous. The Hebrew word literally means something that's extraordinary or beyond a person's natural abilities to fulfill. God is about to do something you wouldn't believe, something that's unexplainable, a miracle. And it's a miracle that's specifically designed to reveal something about God to his people. That's where Joshua goes in verse 9. He says, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. This miracle that God is about to perform, the way he's about to open across the Jordan River, isn't simply a solution to a logistical nightmare. How are we going to cross? It's intended by God to teach his people two things. Number one, that he's with them. Number two, that he's powerful for them. He says, by this you will know that the living God is among you. Now, the living God is a God who is opposed to the dead gods, the idols that the nations worship. And that the living God is with them should come as no surprise. The presence of God with his people is one of the fundamental themes of the entire Old Testament. It begins when God calls his people out of Egypt and leads them by Moses to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountaintop where, you'll remember, he meets with God face to face. There they are together on the mountaintop. The people are terrified because all they hear is thunder and lightning, but Moses is there beholding the glory of God. And so God instructs him in Exodus 33 to lead the people away from Mount Sinai into the promised land. And, jo and Moses says to him in Exodus 33:12, See, you say to me, bring up this people... But you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you've said, I've known you by name, and you've found favor in my sight. Well, then I pray to you. If I've found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider this, too, that this nation is your people. And God said to him, 
My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, If your presence doesn't go with us, don't lead us up from here. And so God answers Moses' request. The people depart from Sinai, and God leads them personally in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And wherever the cloud goes, the people go. And whenever the cloud rested, the people rested. And whenever the fire moved, the people moved. And whenever the fire rested, the people rested. The, the implication being that God was with them everywhere they went. And so here they are, on the edge of the Jordan River, about to possess the promised land. And he reaffirms his promise. The living God is among you. He told Joshua when he commissioned him back in chapter 1, he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads I've given to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and as far as the great sea towards the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I will also be with you. And I will not fail you, nor will I forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and be very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. I love verse 8. And this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do everything that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And get this. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord is with you wherever you go. That's great to memorize that. You could put that on your t-shirt and coffee mug. Okay? It's another thing to have visible proof that God's with you. And that's what he was about to do for his people. These 12 priests are going to take up the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbolic representation of God's presence with his people. And they're going to walk in front. And when they stop, the waters are going to part and the people are going to cross. No doubt about it. The people will know when God's done with his miracle that the living God is among them. But then also, too, he says, so that the God of all the world will assuredly dispossess the nations. Dispossess the nations. Now, I know you got tongue-tied on those seven nations, thought I missed one, termites. Uh, I did not. Uh, and if you compare all the lists of the nations or ethnic groups who were inhabiting ancient Palestine when the people of Israel came over, and just the list in the scripture, you'll see some overlap and some different names are listed. We know these groups of people. They've left behind archaeological uh, evidence. They were all historic people groups. And they were all going to be dispossessed of the land God had given them. Think about that. These are tribes of people who had been residents in the promised land for generations. I mean, hundreds of years in some cases. And they had built up civilizations, fortifications in their towns. 
These are the people that 40 years earlier, the 12 spies were sent into the land to look at. And they came back and saying, hey, this land is great. It is flowing with milk and honey. But the people are giants. And we're like grasshoppers compared to them. There's no way we could ever take this land. You have to think for this generation of people longing to inherit what God had promised their forefathers, they were a little nervous. They saw the task in front of them. They'd heard the stories about what the land was like and like the, what the people who lived there were all about. And there might have been some doubt in their hearts. But God intended to prove to them just how powerful he was. That when the swelling banks of the Jordan River were parted and the people walked across on dry ground, they were supposed to understand something about the God they claimed to serve. That the living God is able to dispossess the people who live there. I like what Joshua says later. He says, Behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. The Lord of all the earth. You know, you think of the Israelites maybe as invaders. But, no, this is God's territory. He is the Lord of all the earth. He can go anywhere He wants and do anything He wants to do. It's His world. We're just living in it. And so moment by moment, as the waters parted and as the people crossed, they were going to be learning personally that the God they claimed to serve was powerful. I like the way David thought about the power of God. He says in Psalm 86, there's no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations whom you've made shall come and worship before you, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. People are going to learn that with visible proof. When the people walked across the Jordan River, they were going to see that their God was with them, and that He was powerful. And that's why I tell you that this miracle is not simply God's answer to a logistical problem. How are they going to cross the Jordan River? Instead, He wanted to teach them who He really was, what He was really capable of doing. I think there's a principle there. That when God chooses to act in our lives... It's never to simply solve our problems. He said he wants to change our perspective. And what I mean by that is the attitude the people had about God before they crossed the river was different than the attitude they had afterwards. They had personally benefited from some aspect of God's character that they didn't personally know before. And who can argue with that? And I think it's the same for us. Bobby Clinton wrote this book called The Making of a Leader. I think I've mentioned it before in a sermon. It's worth reading. He studied the life of 800 different leaders in history and in Scripture. And he came up with this principle. That before God can work through anybody, he first has to work in them. He has to bring them through different experiences that shape them in all kinds of ways, giving them a certain perspective of God and developing their skills and abilities so that when the time comes for, him to do, for them to do the thing that He created them to do, they're perfectly prepared. Now, I can't help but think about the way this has worked out in my own life, that I've had these experiences where I look at this problem and I get a little sweaty in my palms. 
uh, spend some restless nights solving it over and over in my bed. And then I have to put the pedal to the metal and get to work. I remember in 2014, I was sitting in a staff meeting, the last church I served at, with my senior pastor and our executive pastor, and I got a phone call. Looked down as Todd Shoemake, who was my landlord. It's never a good thing to get a call from your landlord, okay? So I'm like, hey, guys, I got to take this. And I go out in the hall, and he says, hey, Brad, just want to give you a heads up. Your lease is out at the end of the month, and I've got an investment opportunity, and I'm going to sell the house. I say, okay. You know, my wife had just found out the month before that we were pregnant. She was pregnant with Knox. And I hate moving. And I was thinking, it, I don't want to pack my stuff. And so I just said, hey, Todd, do you have a buyer? And he said, no. And I said, well, can I make you an offer on the house? And he said, yeah, I'd let you do that. And I said, well, give me till Friday, and I'll give you a call back. Now, Aaron and I were not thinking of buying a home. We were not making the wise financial decisions to put ourselves in a position to buy a home. But I was about to be homeless and I didn't want to move. My wife had a baby on the way, and I didn't know what I was going to do. So we talked about it and prayed about it, and we said, God, you know, what would you have us do? And we came to the conclusion that we're just going to make Todd a lowball offer, and if he accepts, then we'll go to the next step. And so that's what we did. I went online and looked around at some different stuff and made Todd a lowball offer, and he accepted. So like, okay, well, now I've got to find a mortgage. <laughs> and so, you know, I call the bank, and I'm like, hey... You know, I've got an offer in on a house. I need to see if I can get pre-qualified for a mortgage. And they're like, okay. And they have you send in, you know, the, your, a vial of your blood and all your IRS documents. And they get you registered. And, and everything, it just kind of worked out. All the pieces fell into place. And you know that I had always grown up hearing that God always makes a way. That God provides. You know, that God's faithful. He'll always leads you right where he wants you to be. But after going through that experience, I kind of knew that on a different level, on an experiential level. You know, we sold the house, and, you know, it's all good. But I believe my God is capable of doing just about anything he wants to do. There's no problem that can come into my life that God doesn't have the solution for. Uh, we lived through one of those things together. You know, three years ago, I stood up here and presented to you a recommendation from our administrative leadership team for a $250,000 renovation project. We were going to fundraise it. Y'all were going to have to be generous and give, and we were going to transform this building. We were going to replace our leaky roof, replace all our windows, transform the inside and out of our building so we could leverage it for ministry. I am a new senior pastor. I've never led through a capital campaign I didn't know, I was too dumb to know what I didn't know, okay? And I'll never forget, after the pledge day, when we started doing the math, sitting around the table with our ALT, and doing the numbers, and realized we were like $100,000 short. If all the pledges came in, we were $100,000 short of doing everything we wanted to do. And I, and I draw deep in the well of seminary training and come up with boilerplate pastor speak. God's given us all the money today, folks, to do what he's called us to do today. And when he's time for us to do something else, he'll give us the rest. And I didn't believe a word of it. <laughs> I 
That's true. That's what preachers are supposed to say. You're supposed to be positive and cast the vision and just trust that God's going to make up the slack. And he did. He's able to do abundantly beyond more than we can ask or think. My experience of God is totally different now than it was then because I've lived through some stuff, and I know you're like that. You've experienced miraculous intervention of God in your life, and you're different because of it. And that's what he was about to do for Israel. He's about to show them that he's with them and that he's for them. And that's what happened. In verse 14, God worked the miracle. The priests take up the ark. The whole narrative kind of slows down. It's like God presses pause. He's like, hey, I don't want you to miss anything that's about to happen. And he's repetitive, and he tells us, and then he tells us again. And the actual dynamics of it are pretty bizarre. I mean, you got the priests carrying the ark, and they plant their feet in the river. And 20 miles upstream, near a village called Adam, the waters pile up in a big heap. Kind of like a pile of rocks, maybe. And they stop. And because a faucet has been turned off, the riverbed dries up all the way down to the sea, and the people walk across. I mean, you think about this. It, it, God makes a point. The Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. And then over in chapter 4, it said, And when the priest came out, the Jordan returned to the place and went over all its banks as before. Now, the Jordan River, throughout most of the, most of the year, is only about a, 100 feet across. Can you believe that? That's not very big. It's like a Texas river or something. But in the springtime, when the snow off the mountains of Hermon melt, and all the water rushes down, do you know it can be as much as a mile wide? Here you've got a bunch of men, women, and children, and all their livestock. They're going to have to cross over it. I mean, it's impossible. You can, that's normally, it's shallow in some places. You can just roll right across it. But not this river. This river is swollen beyond its banks. And the circumstances of this miracle are so bizarre, critical scholars try to tell us that it probably happened like this. The Jordan River sits on a fault line. And there's probably an earthquake that caused a mudslide. And the mud slid down the mountain and stopped right there by the village of Adam and created a natural dam so that the waters were cut off at just the perfect moment for the people to cross over. Now, and perhaps, I don't know, the dynamics of it. They weren't there. It was 20 miles upstream. Who knows? Maybe God caused a mudslide. But the scriptures just tell us that God said the word. The people took their place in the river, and the river stopped. This is miraculous intervention that defies all explanation. And yet, aren't we sometimes like those scholars? Don't we experience something kind of miraculous and then try to explain it away? You know, God acts, and we come up with the explanation. And you could have done that with that house story I told you. You know, yeah, you might not have been thinking about buying a house, Brad, but it was an opportunity. And you were working. Aaron was working as a nurse. Y'all, you know, that's probably a good decision to make for the stage of life you were in. You were shrewd. You made him a lowball offer and were smart enough to check the fair market value of comparable houses. You were able to shop around for the right mortgage. Now, you could explain the miraculous intervention of God away in my life. 
And I'm sure you can do that in your life too. When you look back and you think about those events that were like clearly God things, you could say, well, no, you know, it was, I was just working hard, you know, and good things happen for people who show up, for people who put in the work. And I was grinding, man. I was working hard to make stuff happen. And so it turns out that we give God all the blame. But looking back on the good things that have happened, don't we take all the credit? Some of y'all are sweet. And y'all try to tell me that what we did the past three years was because of me. But I can tell you, every good thing that happened in this church since I got here is despite me, not because of me. And pretty much every good thing that's happened in my life is all an act of grace, not because I deserved it. I mean, if we're going to be honest, if we're going to face whatever it is next, we need to resist the temptation in ourselves to take credit for what God did. And we need to call it for what it is. God did that. God showed up for me when I didn't know the decision I was going to make. God opened the door. God provided. What about what you or I can do? It's about what He's done. I can't take credit for a single thing of it. God gave us the money to renovate our building. And if God calls us to do something extravagant and outside of our comprehension, beyond what you think is possible, it's on Him. Not on me. I didn't do any of this. You didn't do any of this. It's on Him. God worked the miracle. And because He worked the miracle, He told those people, y'all better remember what I did for you. He gave them instructions, didn't He? He said, choose 12 men, each one out of each tribe, and send him into the river to pick up a stone and to bring it back to the place where y'all are camping tonight. He said in verse 6, let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Now, it's a heap of rocks. Okay, I've got a couple up here just to kind of help you wrap your mind around it. I assume Joshua's rocks were bigger, but these serve the purpose for today. Take a rock and pile them up. Or any normal person walking down the road, passing by Gilgal. Oh, look, it's some construction debris. A leftover project from somebody building a wall or building a house. There's a pile of rocks. But to the people who have faith, who'd heard the story, it was a sign. Now, signs are interesting. Signs aren't significant in themselves, but they point beyond themselves the thing they signify. And the Bible's full of all kinds of signs. Think about Genesis chapter 6, the sign of the rainbow. Right? God destroys the world in a global flood, and he puts a sign in the sky for Noah as a pledge of his peace for mankind. No longer will I destroy the earth, but I'll provide for it seed time and harvest time. Think about Genesis chapter 17, the sign of circumcision, which God gave to Abraham to be a token of his provision and covenant that Abraham passed on to his descendants. Think about the sign of Passover blood painted 
on the Israelite doors in Egypt, which was a sign to God that their sins had been covered over by the blood of a lamb. And the sign of Passover that was celebrated every year as the people of Israel sat down and ate that memorial meal, remembering that they'd once been slaves, but God had set them free. Think about the sign of the Lord's Supper that we celebrate every other month. We believe that Jesus Christ, God's Son, took on human flesh and lived a sinless life, perfectly fulfilling God's law on behalf of everybody who trusts in Him. And at the end of His perfect life, He surrendered Himself to the Father's plan and died on the cross for sinners. And when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we remember the Lord's death until He comes. We remind ourselves that the things in themselves are not what matters. It's the thing they point beyond to Christ and His once-for-all sacrifice. Think about the symbol and sign of baptism. Baptism communicates to the whole world our union with Christ in His death and resurrection, that we're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism's insignificant without the thing it points to. Unless you've by faith taken hold of Christ and been united by His Spirit to Him, it means nothing. And that's what the twelve stones were. They were signs. Not significant in themselves, but pointing beyond to something greater. And what is the something greater? Like the way Joshua puts it in verse 23 of chapter 4. First he says, What are these stones? And you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, I don't know if the stones were selected because they looked like the waters of the Jordan River that were heaped up by the village of Araba. But that's kind of my guess, is that when they looked at a pile of rocks, they're supposed to remember that that's exactly what God did to the waters of the Jordan River. He piled them up on themselves so that we could cross over on dry land. But the significance of that event was even deeper than that. Not just that God had solved their problem, but He'd proven to the whole world how powerful He was. That the hand of the Lord was mighty. And because the people had personally experienced God's mighty hand, they were going to walk in fear. They were going to walk in reverence and humility before Him all the days of their life. Implicit in this stone sign was the claim that if God could do it for them, like He'd done for the Exodus generation at the Red Sea, and as He'd done for the wilderness generation at the Jordan River, He can do the impossible for anybody who believes. I don't know what you're facing next in your life. I don't know what big decision you've got in front of you. You know, if you're worried about 2023, what the future holds. I've been walking with God long enough that I believe He's capable of doing anything He wants to do. I've experienced it personally. If he can do it for them, he can do it for you. If he could provide for our church in some renovations, 
Don't you think he can do what he needs to do to take us wherever he wants us to go? I don't know, do you have some things in your life, some events like the house story for me and Aaron? Some instances where God showed up. Maybe he's showing up right now in a way that you've never experienced before. Maybe all the pieces of your life are just falling into place and you can see so clearly God's hand. Write it down. Make sure your grandchildren know. Set your iPhone up on your kitchen counter and sit in a chair and record a video. Say, hey, grandkids, children, great-great-grandkids who aren't even bored yet, you need to know what God did for me. You need to memorialize it. You know, we don't really do the pile of rocks anymore. We typically do our memorials and pictures. And this week I, I grabbed some pictures of what I think about our church. Think about oil field workers who in 1946 were thinking about the men from Luling who died in World War II. They needed some additional classroom space and a gathering place for their church, and so they decided to build the memorial wing, which is where our fellowship hall is. And so after work, nights and weekends, they came up to the church to pour concrete by hand, mixing it in wheelbarrows out back, bringing it where it needed to go. Think about the ladies. who watched kids so men could work, who made egg salad sandwiches, sweet tea, keep people fed and cool. I think about missions. Mission in Fairbanks, Alaska, summer of 1947, sponsored by Central Baptist Church. I think about the cone building Y'all know the cone building. It sits out in our parking lot. It's a storage place. It's hot. You don't want to go in there in the summertime. But I got a phone call a couple weeks ago. A guy named Stephen Cone. He said, hey, my great uncle's name was Richard Cone. And I'd always heard stories that there was a building at CBC named after him. Is that true? And I said, there is. I never knew Richard Cone. Richard Cone was a charter member of our church, I found out died May 21st, 1960. All I know about the man is what Stephen Cohn told me and what I can see from the building he left behind. But the little bit I know makes me want to be like him. He was a farmer and a hard worker. Looked after his nephew when his father ran out on him. During the Depression, when Men were riding trains because they couldn't find work. Richard Cohn would pull them off the train and bring them to his house, let them stay the night, give them a warm meal, and offer them a day's work if they wanted it. Stephen said he looked after town drunks, too. One of the motivations in building that building was that people would have a place to stay. Of course, later the Cohn building was what J.M. Bohannon called the R.A. Hut. And some of y'all sat around the fireplace learning about missions. God loved the world so much that he sent his son to save a people from every nation, tribe, and language. Now think about leaders in our church, pastors that I've had the pleasure of following, and deacons 
Do we have that picture? I love this one. Right, they're standing, I guess, just about right where I am, writing the check to pay off the debt of the new church, June 9, 1946. The original building committee treasurer and pastor felt compelled to wear a suit today in their honor. Man, our church has a legacy. And I'll always remember you. Then on August 18th, 2019, I stood up here in front of you and asked for your permission to get an architect to come out here and take a look at our building, to put together a team of people, try to figure out what work needed to be done on our facilities. We can never forget that. Hope you'll never forget it as long as you live. The part you played in taking care of a church that had been seriously neglected, transforming it, not for us so that we have a beautiful building to sit in, not as a monument to our accomplishments, but as a place where for generations our children are going to ask us, what does this building mean to you? What do these stones mean to you? And I'll get to say that faithful men and women, just ordinary people, working people, retired people, generously gave what God had given them so that we would know Him. Church, I don't know what we're facing next. I don't know what all God's going to call us to do. But if we'll commit to remembering what God's done in the past, we'll build our faith to face whatever it is. You pray with me. Father in heaven, you are so good. And we can sit around all day talking about Sunday school teachers and pastors and parents and grandparents who have taught us about your ways. And we've come to know personally just how powerful you are. And we believe that you are with us. And because of that, Lord, we ask that you would continue your work in us that you would build our faith to tackle whatever it is you have us as a family, as individuals, as a church. That we trust that just as you've been faithful in the past, just as how you've done great and marvelous things for the generations who've come before, you do it for us. That we get the joy of telling our children and grandchildren about the marvelous things that the Lord has done for us. God, I pray for the men and women here today who need you to show up in their life. They have an uncertain future and they don't know what they're facing. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, draw them into Jesus, that they would find in him everything they need. That as they walk with him, you'd make their next steps clear and you'd keep them right where you want them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou Forever will be.
As we prepare to leave this morning, I want to just tell you, if there's any kind of decision that God has placed on your heart today that you'd like to talk to somebody about, I'd love to hear about it. If I can pray with you about anything he's doing in your life, I certainly want to do that too. But listen, maybe as we were talking about things that you ought to remember, some things came to mind. And so I want you to leave here with a rock in your pocket. I know some of these rocks are kind of big, depends on how big your pockets are. But um, on your way out, take you a rock. And on the backside, maybe get a Sharpie marker 
and write down what it is. Or just put it on your night side table, your bedside table, and uh, look at it every night and remember all the great things God's done for you. I don't want to have to pick them up again. So y'all help me on that. All right. Hey, yesterday, men, we had a great time at the men's breakfast. If you came out, thank you all so much for being there. Um, I definitely discovered who I don't want to get into a battle of the wits with and who I'm all right against, I think. And uh, <laughs> it was a fun time, guys. Thanks for coming. Hey, don't forget, Wednesday night, we've got another night of worship and prayer as we continue talking about our strategic ministry plan. This week, we're talking about what it means to build a family that passes on the faith. And so I hope you'll come for that. And of course, our kids are going to have fun um, with Pastor Jerry and Sister Sylvia as well. Listen, um, I know I asked you last week to sign up to help cook the uh, football team a meal for their scrimmage this Friday against Poth. But talk to Coach Langford this week, and because of the schedule of things on campus on Friday, um, they don't need us to cook this week. So we're going to try again in September, the September 2nd. Don't forget, I saw some school supplies come in. Thank you so much for doing that. We're going to have a drive-through prayer event on August 17th. That's next Wednesday, and we're going to be handing out uh, school supplies. So appreciate you bringing those for us to put in backpacks for kids who need it. Listen, next Sunday is a big day. It's Promotion Sunday. And at the end of our service, we're going to bring in all our kids and recognize them as they move up to their new classes. We've got a bunch of kids moving out of our second grade class into our third grade class. We're going to give each of them a gift. Then we've got a bunch of kids moving out of the, student, uh, out of the kids' ministry altogether and going into sixth grade. And so we're going to recognize them and give them a gift. So parents, make sure your kids are here for that. And then afterwards, we're having, the ladies are having a diaper shower for Stephanie Gordell and Maymay, their new foster daughter. And so, ladies, you'll see all the information about that in the bulletin, and I hope you'll come and be prepared to stick around and uh, celebrate with them as God's brought this new little girl into their life. And then the week after that, we're having our big Back to Church Sunday. We're going to have lunch right after church, so I hope you'll plan to be here for that and you'll bring a friend as we all get back into the rhythm of church going. All right, that's enough announcements. Let me leave you today with this challenging word. It's a trustworthy statement. If we've died with Christ, we'll also live with Him. If we endure, we'll also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. But when we're faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Hey, keep pursuing Christ this week. We'll see you next Sunday. Be dismissed. You're blessed.